Good morning. It is good to be here this morning, and uh, I'm very thankful to Brad for stepping in last week. It's good to know you can call a guy up on a Friday and say, hey, I think I may need you to preach for me on Sunday, and they say, hey, I can do that. So thank you, Brad. Uh, <clears throat> one summer, whenever I was in college, I was, I was taking a class called Electromagnetic Devices. Again, it's one of those classes, I don't think I could fill up a note card today with what I learned in that class. I've got a few of those. But I was taking this class, and it's not much fun taking a college class during the summer. There's not very many people there. This was in Montgomery, West Virginia. It's a, it's a small town anyway. And so I was taking this class, so kind of as a treat to myself, I would get up and I would go to this place called the Bear's Den. They had uh, a little restaurant there. They had a big screen TV. And I would go to the Bears Den, and I'd have a bowl of Lucky Charms. <laughs> so every morning I'd get up, and I'd get my bowl of Lucky Charms. I'd go through the line, grab a carton of milk, put it on my tray, and I'd proceed to one of the little booths there in front of the TV. Well, I did this one morning just like I would any morning. And I'm sitting there in front of the TV. I pour my milk on the cereal, and then I take my spoon, and I proceed to get my first bite. Only the Lucky Charms did not taste the same that morning as they had previous mornings. And I look down on, in, the, in the bowl, and I just see these white chunks sitting on top of the Lucky Charms. And then surrounding the cereal is just sort of this, this clear fluid that's kind of greenish looking even. And it was a little warmer than usual. This is not what I was anticipating. See, when I went through the line, I picked up the carton, and it looked just like all the other cartons. I looked down. I had a picture of a smiling cow with a beaded necklace. <laughs> it didn't say that it contained spoiled milk inside. It didn't say there was anything wrong with it. And yet, that's exactly what was inside of it. Spoiled milk. You know, much like those cartons, there are teachers out in the world today that are teaching a spoiled milk. They're called false teachers. They're imposters. They say they're telling you one thing, but in actuality, they're telling you something else. And in a time that is unprecedented in the amount of information that's available to Christians out there, on the radio, on TV, on the internet. Never before have we had such a problem with what I'm going to call spoiled milk theology making its way into the hearts and minds of evangelical Christians living here in America. Um, there was a study done, actually this was done in May of 2015 by Pew Research asking American evangelical Protestants what it was they believed. And a question that study stated, uh, how many of you believe that other religions can lead to eternal life? 57% said they believe that other religions could lead to eternal life. When asked, are you absolutely certain you believe in God, only 63% said yes. Now, these are people professing to be evangelical Christians. And then when asked if you believe in heaven, only 72% said yes. 
You see, this bad teaching has seeped its way in. And again, there's never been more information available to Christians in America than there is right now. And yet we have this problem. You see, what, what that means is you and I have to figure out how do we recognize bad doctrine? It's coming at us from all kinds of different angles. How do we recognize the good stuff from the bad stuff? When the carton looks the same, how do you know whether or not there's spoiled milk inside? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 11, where Paul is warning a group of people about these imposters out there. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of, of, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You may be seated. So we're going to come at this passage uh, like this this morning. We're going to look at it from a, a perspective of then and always and now. And this is actually the process I go through. Every time, uh, every time I prepare for a lesson, any time I prepare for a sermon, I look at the passage this way. I study to say... Okay, what did it mean at the time of the writing? That means getting into the shoes of the original audience, understanding it the way they would have understood. And then, what is the timeless truth of this passage? And then finally, how do we apply it today? So then, always, now, we'll walk through this passage, look at it in its original context, ask, what is the timeless truth here? And then ask, okay, how are we going to apply this today? So let's start going through this. And we get to verse 1, and immediately we see there's a seam. There's a shift now in the book of Philippians. And in chapter 1, he was talking about how to do life. In chapter 2, he was providing examples of first of Christ primarily, then of Timothy, and then of Epaphroditus, and then of himself. And now he's indicating that he's moving on to his last arguments in chapters 3 and 4. So we get to chapter, chapter 3, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord. He commands them, and he even says, I'm writing this again to you. It's no trouble for me to write it again. And he says, it's a safeguard for you. 
Now, Paul's repeating himself. And any time something's repeated in the Bible, I, I believe it's 18 times he commands people to rejoice in the Lord. When something's repeated, I take special note. Paper wasn't super easy to come by as it is now. So Paul keeps telling them again and again, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. You know why? Because it's so easy for us to forget to rejoice in the Lord. Circumstances change. Life changes. And Paul has to continually and continually and continually point them back to God. God is the consistent force in your life. And that's where you find your joy. That's where you find your purpose. That's where you find your identity. So he says it again, rejoice in the Lord. And then he continues on. He's making no apologies for saying it again. He said it's a safeguard for you. Now, why is it a safeguard for them? He said it's safe for you. Because Paul knows that something is tempting them. That something could be drawing their attention away from rejoicing in the Lord. And what is that? Now he proceeds to go into it uh, there in verse 2. He says, look out. There's a warning here. He's actually going to give them three warnings to look out. Beware. Take caution. There's a blinking red light here. And then he uses some pretty harsh language. He says, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Three things he lists, them, lists there to watch out for. He's talking about false teachers. He's talking about these people that are coming across in one way. Maybe they look it on the outside, but not on the inside. They're teaching something that's really problematic. And he calls them dogs. Now, when we think dogs in our context, we're thinking about little Fifi and Fufu, right? Little Chablis and Chardonnay are, are two Maltese's. Whatever. Anyway, whatever you named them. Um, whatever your little dogs are. Well, that wasn't the way dogs were uh, back then, okay? Um, dogs were scavengers. Dog would pray, dogs would prey on anything that was weaker than them. They were, they were vicious, all right? Uh, and he's saying that's what these people are doing. They're preying on you. They're like, these, they're like these scavenging dogs. In a nutshell, they're trying to teach these Gentiles that they can become clean through circumcision. That that's the crux of the gospel. And he's saying that they are actually unclean dogs. Not only that, but they're evildoers. They're pushing this this false gospel. And then lastly, they're mutilating the gospel by insisting that the way to receive forgiveness from by God is by mutilating the flesh. Now, it's important to, it's important to, uh, important to point out that Paul is not saying that circumcision in and of itself is a sin. It was actually uh, commanded in the Old Testament and even today, I believe it's, it's recommended by the American Pediatric Association. He's not saying that's a sin. What he is saying is that when you start adding anything to the gospel as a means of becoming clean beyond the gospel itself, now you've moved into dangerous territory. Now you've moved into something heretical. And Paul's saying that is totally, totally wrong. 
And then he further explains the intent of circumcision in verse 3. And this is weird. He says, for we are the circumcision. Now, now what does that even mean, that, that we're the true circumcision? Now, to understand this, we've got to go back into the Old Testament and understand what circumcision was. It was, it was the sign of a covenant. It was an outward sign of an inward belief, not unlike baptism. Baptism is this visible sign of an invisible grace that we have received. Circumcision was this outward physical sign that you were trusting Yahweh, that you were in a covenant with him. So this is what circumcision symbolized. Now, albeit it's a kind of a weird symbol. I don't know why there just couldn't have been a tattoo or something like that. But it's, it is what it is. And it actually echoes back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. It says there, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So we Christians are the, the circumcision by virtue of us having trusted in Christ, and as the text says, we are now living by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have these circumcised hearts. We're now capable of belief. We're now capable of loving God, worshiping Him by the power of the Holy Spirit, and glory in Christ Jesus, that is to say, worshiping Christ, boasting about Christ. Again, Paul's transitioning them away from this idea of you can do it through your own effort. You can't. It's all by faith, and he's going to continue that line of reasoning. He's going to say, put no confidence in the flesh. Zero confidence in the flesh. And you may be really good at some aspect of Christianity, right? Some of us are better in some things than others. You may be really good at not saying certain words. You may be really good at not doing something. And Paul's going to make the argument that I was really good at keeping the law really good at it. He's a guy that's accomplished a lot. He's going to start giving his resume in verse 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, this is the basis of Paul's argument. He's saying that if you could be saved by the standards that have been set by these Judaizers, he said, I could be saved all that much more. He says, these guys, these Judaizers, they're, they're coming to you. And this is what often happened. They would, they would come to towns after Paul had been there and preached and spread the gospel. And they would come in behind him and say, look, I know what Paul said, but it's not that easy. He would say, you've got to be circumcised. They would say, you've got to be circumcised to, to be saved. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, hold on. Let me, let's just expand on that idea for a minute. And he says then, uh, continuing on in verse 5, he says, look, I was circumcised like every good Jewish baby on the eighth day. Okay, I was born into this Judaism thing. Some Jews were proselytes. They would become Jews later in life. Paul's saying, not me. Day one. I was a Jew. He was a pure-blooded Jew. Uh, then it says of the people of Israel. 
Unlike some of those Judaizers that may have been proselytes, Paul's lineage goes all the way back to Abraham. He had two Jewish parents. It says he was a Benjamite. That was a special tribe in Israel. Always stayed loyal to the house of David. Didn't rebel like some of the other tribes did. It was special honor uh, prescribed the tribe of Benjamin. In addition to that, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Hebrew through and through. Uh, even though the Greeks had come in, there was, a, there was a number of regime changes across the Middle East and around the Mediterranean through the years. You know, there was the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians. Eventually, the Greeks came in. They conquered, and they Hellenized the area. That is, they ascribed Greek culture all around that, that part of the world. And Paul's saying, I did not succumb to Greek culture. You know, it's like a guy from, from West Virginia moving to Wyoming, <laughs> right? He hasn't got his cowboy boots yet, and he still wears his West Virginia hat from time to time. Same kind of deal. So he has not yet become inculcated in Greek culture. And he continues to talk about his relationship. He was a Pharisee, his relationship to the law. He was a Pharisee, and they were unique. They were unique in that they laid on top of the law their own interpretations of the law. And they had this oral tradition that they memorized. So they kept laws beyond the 600 or so laws that were in the Old Testament. And he said, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. And he's saying, look, you don't have it as good as I did. They're pushing this thing on you. I'm telling you, they're not, they, they didn't do it as well as I did. So when it came down to it, in regards to legalistic righteousness, he was flawless. He said, if you could earn righteousness, I would have done it. And then we get to verses 7 and 8. And what is his diagnosis of his own condition? He said, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered. The loss of all things, I count them as rubbish so that I might gain Christ. So he sums up all of his credentials in verses 5, 6, it says they have a sum total of zero. As a matter of fact, he's going to go beyond that. He says to try and attain favor with God through his flesh, he said it's, it's rubbish. And that's a pretty cleaned up version of this word. Uh, it's actually a crude word. It could be translated as a crude word for dung. I'm not going to put that in English. I'd lose my job. All right? But it's, it's disgusting to him. And he concluded it was worth losing all he had in order to gain Christ. Moving to verse 9, Paul says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's by faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. This righteousness that Paul's talking about, it's yours and mine. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, the text says that you're found in Him. I always struggle with that phrase. 
Because in many ways, it's quite literal. It's like we are found in Christ, meaning when the Father looks down on us, he sees his own son. He sees Jesus. So your past, whatever lingers back there, whatever nips at your heels from time to time, it is now in Christ. It's all in Christ. You're not going to be judged for the things that you've done that displease God. It's all in Christ. And this righteousness that we now have, it's the righteousness of Christ. It's as though the righteousness of Christ was extracted and then put into us. So we do good things to please God, yes, but we're not depending on that to be righteous. We've been declared righteous. We've been made righteous. So we're not earning righteousness. Paul sees that. He's saying you don't need to be circumcised. You've been given righteous. You're, you're made righteous. It's by trusting in Jesus Christ, and it comes by faith. You exercised faith when you walked into this building. You had faith the ceiling wasn't going to fall down. You exercised faith when you sat in that chair. You believed it was going to hold you up. You exercised faith when you got in your car this morning. You didn't know you would make it here. I mean, you really didn't know you'd make it here. I was rose for something else. But we, we accept it by faith. We gain salvation by faith. We get this righteousness. It comes from faith. And then verses 10 and 11, Paul says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul knew Christ as his Savior. He's not doubting that uh, in any way here. But he wanted to know the power which raised Christ from the dead. He didn't stop when he became saved. He wanted to continue to know this power and know it more. And then what does it mean there? He wanted to suffer for the sake of righteousness. It was predicted. The Lord spoke that Paul would suffer. Actually, if you go back to Acts 9.16, it says that the Lord said how much Paul was going to have to suffer for his name. And then finally in verse 11, that I may by any means possible, attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, that's a strange way of saying that he was planning on being resurrected. But Paul also, also, Paul also knew the, the tribulations he was going to have to go through. In Acts 14, 22, uh, he says this, um, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul's saying, whatever tribulations I have to go through, by any means possible, I'm going to attain this resurrection of the dead. I'm going to be raptured. I'm going to be raised up. So then, as we go through this, and if I was going to sum it up, false teachers added to the gospel. And Paul goes through a lengthy description to say, you cannot add to the gospel. Paul's saying, if it was sufficient to be saved outside of the gospel, I could have done it. Are you adding something to the gospel this morning? This has been going on ever since the church came together. We've been adding to and adding to. And then there would be some reform, and then we go at it again. Uh, false teaching kind of hit its zenith in some senses in 1500, but then it continued on. And we're still dealing with bad teaching. See, the timeless truth here is that believers must be aware of unorthodox teaching because it doesn't stop. This wasn't just for the time of the Philippians. It continues on today. There's something out there called the prosperity gospel. 
that kind of treats the Lord as some kind of cosmic Santa Claus that you can just get what you want. Whatever it is. And the pastors that peddle this, they, they make the big bucks. I'm telling you what, they got the big planes and the cars by peddling this false gospel. We always have to be aware of this. Things can always get muddled. And you heard the statistics I read at the beginning of the sermon. Many people who claim to be Christians are way, way off in what they believe. Way, way off in their doctrines. So then what do we do about that? Because we must be aware of unorthodox teaching. There's bad teaching out there about the Trinity, about Christ. And the way to counteract that is to know the key doctrines of Orthodox Christianity. There's actually seven that I'm going to relay to you right now that are considered the key doctrines of Orthodox Christianity. And you'll be surprised how fast we can zip through these. They're really easy. They're really straightforward. But if people would hold on to these seven, you would be surprised how much bad teaching would go away. And by the way, if you've ever wondered what part of Christianity kind of transcends denominations? What transcends what Baptists believe what, versus what Lutherans believe versus what Presbyterians believe? These seven doctrines transcend denominations, and it's what the church has believed ever since the beginning all the way until now. And I want to define a word for you. I kick around this word orthodox quite a bit. Well, first of all, what does it mean? It simply means right teaching. That's it. It's good teaching. It's the teaching you want to listen to. So it's this word orthodox. Now, I know when you hear that word, you, you think of cathedrals and incense and men with long beards. But it just means literally right teaching. So this is how we're going to apply this sermon by catching on to these seven doctrines. These are the big seven. And I think we're going to, I don't think, this week we're going to upload this um, presentation. So uh, if you want to download these slides, you'll be able to um, off our website. But I remember these. This is my fancy alliteration. Touchdown, pass, win, Super Bowl, cheerleaders, rah. <laughs> That's how I remember these doctrines. And if you can just remember the first letter, you can pretty much remember these, these seven. Touchdown, pass, win, Super Bowl, cheerleaders, rah. Okay? That's how I remember these. I know. Paid all that money for seminary. This is what it boils down to, how I remember these things. And again, this transcends denominational lines. First of all, what we believe about the Trinity. We believe our God is three persons. One God. Three persons. You may say, I don't understand. Guess what? That's okay. I don't understand it. I just simply believe it to be true. That's faith. All three have eternally coexisted. There was no starting point for the Father, no starting point for the Son, no starting point for the Holy Spirit. All three persons have coexisted for all time. And they are distinct persons. This is the only diagram of the Trinity I like. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. Okay, there we go. Trinity. That's it. Moving on. Depravity. That's the D. 
This is the state of man. Things went bad early on. Adam and Eve sinned. Every subsequent generation was impacted by this. We're all born to pray. We're all born with this sin nature, this propensity to sin. That's from Romans 3.23. So that's our doctrine of depravity. We're born sinful. Straightforward. Next, the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is unique among the persons of the Trinity. Why? Because he's 100% human. He's 100% God. He's 100% human. Both. When he was on earth walking around as a man, he was fully God, the creator of the universe. When he, had, when he, was, uh, when he was doing miracles, he was still fully man. He didn't flip in and out of man mode and God mode. He was 100% God, 100% man. He took the penalty of my sin and yours. He was our substitute. He did for us what we could never have done for ourselves. And it's by believing this to be true that we're saved. Understanding we have, we're sinners and trusting in what Christ has done for us. That's the personal work of Jesus Christ. Next, salvation by grace through faith. This is how we obtain salvation. It's really clear Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that by grace we're saved through faith. Grace is a gift. We don't earn it. There's nothing we can do to earn grace. It's a deal that sounds too good to be true, but it is true. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith is the means by which we accept this free gift. Next, the Bible. We believe it to be fully inspired by the Holy Spirit. He worked through men. The Holy Spirit worked through men to give us the scriptures. He used 100% of that man. And he was 100% behind it to give us the word of God. We believe it's the final authority in all matters. No matter what culture is telling us, no matter what man is telling us, we bring it to the word of God to determine is it true, is it false, do we follow it or do we not? We believe it to be without error in the original manuscripts. The first time it was written out, the first time pen went to paper to write out the Gospels, to write out the Bible, it was without error. We believe the church, all Christians everywhere, it's comprised of all redeemed Christians living on earth right now. As Deb was saying at the very beginning, we're part of something bigger than ourselves. We're part of this thing called the church. It's the representation of God on earth. It exists for worship of God, fellowship and evangelism, and to partake in communion and baptism. Those are some of the earmarks of the church. We'll be going over that in more depth, actually, uh, right after Easter. And finally, we believe in the future. Christ will come and restore all of humanity and creation. He's going to come and reign as king. Christ will reign as king right here on earth, and he's going to make all things new. He'll physically be here serving as judge and king. All people, both Christian and non-Christian, are going to be resurrected. The saved will be resurrected to eternal life, and the unsaved will be resurrected to eternal condemnation. I pray that if you're here this morning and you're not sure if you've trusted Christ or not, you will not wait till you're resurrected to eternal condemnation. We don't want that for anyone here. If you're unsure of your salvation, talk to one of us today. So those are the big seven. Pretty straightforward. You know how to detect a counterfeit? It's by knowing the real thing. 
And that's why I'm urging you to know those seven. Commit those seven to your heart. Now, I want to move on to one thing here at the end. A new word, you may or may not have heard it, orthopraxy. Well, what does that mean, Chad? It simply means right practice. Doing the right thing. Now, orthodoxy, this will be the position of, position of orthodoxy, leads to orthopraxy. In other words, believing the right thing turns into doing the right thing. Think about our friend Paul for just a second. He believed initially that by being a good Pharisee, he would please God. That was his belief. That was his orthodoxy. But it was, it was actually heresy. Because what did that lead to? It led to the persecution of the church. That's what it led to. Believing rightly leads to doing right. You know, if you believe that your identity rests on how well your children perform in sports or in academics, what's that going to lead to over here? You are going to ride them like crazy because you're saying my identity rests on how well they perform. If you're over here, if you believe that you are kept saved, you may believe that you were saved by grace through faith, but what if you believe that you could lose your salvation because you backslide? There are some traditions that teach that. If you believe that, what's that going to lead? You're going to be anxious all the time. You're not going to be able to rest in the Lord. That's why it's so important that we are believing rightly, because by believing rightly, we'll end up doing rightly. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. So what does that leave us with? Know those seven doctrines. I'm not just telling you that so you can win arguments. I'm telling you that because that will profoundly impact how you live today. <clears throat> you know, um, after I drank that bad milk at West Virginia Tech, I can honestly say that I've not put bad milk back on my cereal. You see, I sniff it. <laughs> I pour in a glass and I look at it. I stir it up a little bit. Because I don't want to be fooled by that imposter again. And if you can zero in on those seven doctrines, you can keep yourself by, from being fooled by the imposters. You'll discern the true from the false. Please pray with me. I pray, God, that you would help us to commit these doctrines to our hearts, to our minds. That we would be able to tell the true from the false, the real from the counterfeit. That when we're hearing and listening, we would be discerning what it is we see and we hear. Give us the wisdom to do this. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever.